Hello, welcome to Desert Island Books, a podcast about reading. I'm your host and resident librarian, Natalie Mason, from the Melbourne Library Service. Joining me is a special guest who will share their top three all-time favourite books. Robin Anir is a writer and historian. She has authored many books about Melbourne and Victorian history, including A City Lost and Found, Wheel in the Wreckers Melbourne, which is my favourite, Bear Brass, Imagining Early Melbourne, and Fly a Rebel Flag, The Eureka Stockade, among others. And I also hear on the grapevine that Robin is launching her very own podcast and writing a new book. Hi, Robin. Welcome to your desert island. Hey, yeah, it's beautiful here. You enjoying the weather? Yeah, my grass skirt's a bit itchy, but other than that, I'm doing fine. <laughs> Do you have a change of clothes? Did you bring clothes <laughs> with you or just books? Um, I've, I've got a slip on under under the uh, skirt, so that's helping the itches. But no, that's it. I'm going out in the street like this afterwards. <laughs> Luckily, the weather, the weather is suitable. It is perfect, isn't mm. it? Um, would you like to commence? Mm, All let's right. go. Well, please reveal the title and author of the first book you would be taking with you to your desert island. <laughs> My first book is a book of essays by Robert Louis Stevenson and its title is Latin and therefore somewhat imposing Virginibus Purisque which means for to maidens and young men Virginibus Purisque. I think that's perfect Latin. It's, uh, I don't know, it depends which school of Latin you learn from, whether that V is pronounced V or W, but let's move on from the title. (laughs) Let's do that. (laughs) It's a book of essays, and my copy's a very old one that's held together with a a shoelace. Is that what that is? I wonder, I thought that's a very stretchy elastic band, but no, it's a a a shoelace. Yeah, yeah, very useful thing. I first read this book when I was in my early 20s, and this is probably characteristic, I'll bet, of many people's favourite books, that Mm. they were things they read in their formative years. And this book was certainly contributory to the formation of me. I was in my early 20s. My favourite thing in the world then, as it is now, was walking. Mm. And somehow I was reading anything and everything about or by Um, someone who walked. So it led me to a whole bunch of, well, 19th century writers Mm. who were, who, who prided themselves on their pedestrianism. Sort of literary explorers. Yeah, yeah, and often they banded together. Yeah. Uh, and Robert Louis Steven w- Stevenson was one of those. And I was drawn to his essays. I'd never read uh, any of his, you know, classic books for boys, which are also, I've discovered since, terrific for girls as well. But I was drawn to the to these essays, the first of which I read was called just called Walking Tours. Hmm. And uh, and. One thing I particularly liked about it was that he said, you know, a walking tour should be embarked upon alone or it is a walking tour in, in nothing but name. It's more like a picnic. Um, and I was, I, I totally agreed with that. He said walking and talking should not be done together uh, unless you're talking to yourself. But he said you have to be careful because you may meet a, a, a policeman or a, or a bumpkin coming around the corner and they'll think you're insane. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, he um he's an he's I found him such entertaining company and I actually would walk and read uh, him. How did same... you how do you manage that? If you can't walk and talk, how are you walking and reading? Uh, I can walk and talk. I just choose not to. Oh, but right, I okay. do <laughs> love to walk and read. I still do it. Um, 
I've I nearly walked into a sign just yesterday, but I think that's you know my eyesight more than anything else. But I walk and read all the time, and I've never you know stepped in dog poo or um, had any serious mishaps. People sometimes. Uh, walk, take a wide berth around me as they do with someone looking at a screen. Yes. But I always see them. My peripheral vision is fantastic. Hmm. And I find walking around, I'll sometimes see a young person on their way to or from school, you know, a, a primary school or, or, or younger secondary student, and they'll be doing the same thing. And we look, at, our, our eyes will meet and uh, this this silent cry of friend yes. <laughs> is transmitted between us. Yeah, there's something um, amazing about sharing reading experiences with people, but very unique to be reading and walking Yeah, and, and find someone else, <laughs> you know, to stumble across someone else doing the same thing on yeah. your on your pathway. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's that's always a terrific thing. Yeah. Um, so I was led to Robert Louis Stevenson by walking uh, and by his essay, Walking Tours. Um, my other favourite in here is one called An Apology for Idlers. Now, I read this one <laughs> on your insistence. He was um he was writing when was he writing in the 1870s 18, yeah this yeah. this anthology was published in 1881 mm-hmm. so yeah his writing dates must have preceded that that's right it seems like most of them were published as things were in those days in magazines yeah. um individually um in the 1870s and he he writes in his little preface to this book that the reason for that name for maidens and young men or youths is that he had originally intended for this to be a book of things he'd written before he was tw- or by the time he was 25 mm. uh, and to oh, right. be- to capture a time in his life and a way of thinking before um, you know before he turned the corner into into mental decline or into fogeyism was really does, i think what he was more afraid does of does that happen at age 25 well that was what you think when you're 25 clearly <laughs> um uh, he never lived to be a fogey. He died in uh, his early forties, I think. I think he was forty-four. Yeah, um, and he was That's never really a fogey. Young. He was never a fo- yeah. was never going to be a fogey anyway, yeah. because he was so um, full of fun. He lived on a desert island, almost a desert island. He yeah. lived uh, um, in um, where was it? Um, one of the islands near Fiji or in that same... That was the inspiration for Treasure Island, surely. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure which came first, actually. Oh, the desert island or the treasure island. Yeah, but he was always (laughs) on the hoof somewhere, um, walking through uh, France or or, um, piloting a boat along the canals of France, uh, walking through uh, America with his uh, Hmm. bride-to-be. He was an outdoorsman and said that to to live out of doors with the woman you love is to be truly free or something of that sort. So he and his wife um, lived almost outdoors in a very um, desert islandish sort of home. Mm. And he was, I believe, preparing a salad or a salad dressing when he suddenly dropped dead from an embolism. Uh, and Good I would, grief. Yeah, well, you know, I think that is uh, the danger of salad myself. <laughs> As a non-salad eater, I would say to him, Anybody listening, beware the salad, or you may go the same route as Robert Louis Stevenson. He was a man with so much promise and so much life. It's um, it's a pity he didn't live to at least have a chance to be a fogey, which mm. he was never going to be. He was quite popular as an author while he lived, which was a bit unusual for that time. A lot of uh, a lot of writers at that time sort of posthumously became mm. famous or more well known. But um, he was quite well regarded and. Like during his lifetime, yeah, he was, and he he um he wrote for adults in the case of uh, 
his essays and he wrote obviously for, for children and for, well, he would say that he wanted adults to read his adventure stories as well. Yeah. Uh, and the Children's Garden of Verse was That's one right. of his best known, even I think in his lifetime. Yeah. My favourite thing that he, that he writes in an apology for idlers and which is not irrelevant uh, to our discussion today is that books are good enough in their own way, but they are a mighty bloodless substitute for life. Yeah. And, uh, and I've all, I mean, I've, been around books all my life as a reader, working in bookshops, writing books, working in a library, but I, I subscribe to that. And I've, I've said that across a library desk or a bookshop counter to people um, who seem too desperate to, to always have a book in front of their face. Truly. I, I read that line and then I read it again and then I read it again and I thought, is he saying <laughs> that life is more exciting than books? Because I don't think that's true. He was res- he was he was responding here to fogey fogeyism <laughs> uh, to the advice from a fogey that you should uh, apply your books well and that that is a responsibility of a young person to ha- always have their head in a book and to study well and he said I would personally hmm. give up uh, many of the of the half awake um, hours I spent in a classroom. Uh, uh, I would rather trade them for the more lively hours I had as a truant in the streets that I learned more there. So that was why he was saying uh, books are a mighty bloodless substitute for life. Ironic then that he wrote about his adventures and now we read them. <laughs> and uh, his books are poor substitute for life. <laughs> Very, what a conundrum. I know. Let's think, our, that. let's think our way out of that one. <laughs> are you prepared to dive into book two? Could you please reveal the title and author of book two? The title of my book two is uh, The Fields Beneath. It's by uh, a British author called Gillian Tyndall. And uh, she has written a number of books, this being the first of them, that are very grounded in place and the history of place and what place means to a person. Um, She wrote this book originally, uh, she would have been writing it in the mid-1970s. It was originally published in 1977. And it would have been quite revolutionary. I think it was. It's it's now viewed as a a classic of local history. Um, Because she wrote about, the, the fields beneath is about the London village of Kentish Town, or as we we would call it, a suburb. Mm. And it was an unusual thing to write about suburbs. Kentish Town was essentially a Victorian suburb of London and um, Victorian architecture, uh, heritage, whatever, was still really on the nose. It Mm. hadn't kind of ticked over to being something truly old and worth keeping. So she saw herself and her her fascination with the, the fairly commonplace history of her suburb as being outliers and uh, many of course followed a whole field of local history studies opened up uh, around the time that her book was published and so she was seen as being a, a pioneer in that field. Yeah, um, she advocates really strongly for protection, heritage protection mm-hmm. and she lived in that suburb so it's it's written from a historian's perspective and a kind of but it's also written from a personal perspective. It's written from the heart. Yes. Yeah, I yeah. think that's was most appealing to me about it was that she felt like you know, this is mine, I belong here, and this is worth keeping. Mm, yeah. And that was really, I mean, it's quite an academically written book, but that but that heart and, yeah. that, and that personal connection to yes. the place was so evident in her writing. Yeah, there's a sense of her writing about 
her neighbourhood, yeah. a neighbourhood, it's her neighbourhood. And um, she also talks to people who were still living then, who had lived through some mm. of this history. And she brings a really interesting view to what they tell her about the inflection that they give to their memories of the place. Uh, so... There's a lot I like about this book. It uh, I, I first read it in the 1980s, and that was a time when I was beginning to take an interest in history. I had travelled overseas in my early 20s, in the early 80s, and I came back with different eyes because mm. I'd seen the history of other places. Had you been to London yes. in that trip? Yeah. yeah. Because I'd seen the history of other places, including London, I came back with my eyes um, trained mm. to see the history of the place uh, I came, places I came from. So I saw the world differently. I took a, an interest in history, including the history of neighbourhoods mm. I lived in, and that was what took me to Gillian Tyndall. And in writing my first book, um, Bear Brass, which I was writing in the early mid-'90s, uh, I actually used, uh, I think I used a, a line from... Gillian Tyndall's introduction to this book as a, um, a, a in my introduction to mine and I found wow. that in I think two subsequent books of mine I've also uh, quoted her or used quotes from her subsequent books as um, epigraphs in my in my books because she really strikes a chord for me in the way she sees history and mm. she's quite although Partly this book comes in response to the demolitions, the wide-scale demolitions that were happening in London and elsewhere in the 1960s. Um, she is pretty pragmatic about losing history, about how we have to let go of history sometimes and that we can, we can, uh, we can sustain and uh, preserve history in our imaginations and in our memories. Yeah. We don't always have to keep the thing. And um, again, that's that struck a chord with me and that's informed my writing and my thinking about history, including about uh, Will and the Wrecker and the, and the carnage that they caused and the loss of uh, so much Melbourne heritage mm. under the under the ball of Will and the Wrecker. So, but then a book like yours that exposes what what used to be there, it, you know, in, in Gillian's title, The Fields Beneath, it's what came before, what was here before this mm. building, what was here before this building's building and taking it backwards. And your book, you know, that kind of focuses on Wheeler and, you know, some of that, well, you can't argue some, it was like almost total destruction <laughs> of um, of Melbourne's heritage. But um, what, what, what went before is so beautifully highlighted in your writing and it brings it to life and having authors like yourself and obviously like Gillian who's been a great influence on you um, to recreate cities for us mm. for those of us who weren't there in the 1800s or weren't there at the turn of the century or, you know, who didn't experience this stuff firsthand, it brings it back to us. It's so important yeah. writing about history and Gillian's approach is almost journalistic in that way. Okay. Journalistic how? In that she's observing and documenting and she's part of the story. You can't help but be part of the story when you're writing about yeah, something. Yeah. There's always part of you in there, even as you're trying to be standoffish. But for Gillian, it, you know, the, it's, it's her city and she's arguing for its preservation. Um, and she's also being a bit of an observer of what other people are feeling about it too. It's not a sort of, this is my city, we should keep it the way it is the end. She's mm. very much like, this is where I live. These are the things that I find important. This is what other people find important. It's almost like she's reporting about what's going on. She's certainly advocating for heritage protection, but she's, um, I don't know if I've done a good job of explaining that, but she's also reporting back on 
what everyone else is feeling as well, even if it contradicts her yes. own yeah. sort of uh, premise or focus. That's true. Yeah, she does come to it that way. And I think part of that comes from her being part of the gentrification of mm. her suburb. Yeah. So a lot of the people living in her street are people who've spent their whole lives there and are fairly lower middle class, work to working class people. And she was part of the 1960s and 70s gentrification of Victorian suburbs of London and yeah. elsewhere. And so she she certainly is seeking out the what values others place on yeah. the heritage and, and the she's history. reporting their voices yeah, yeah. too. That's true. Yeah, yeah, they come through quite strongly in places. So yeah, I liked... Um, I like all the aspects of it and, and her just her approach to history. There is that slightly academic. She certainly shows the bones of her research efforts, I think. She mm. shows where she went, how she found what she found. Yeah. Um, and that's that, that was particularly helpful for me mm. and uh, I'm sure for lots of other people in this movement towards um, local history studies that happened in the period following its publication. And it was a great success. Her yeah. arguments have, you know come to bear in that there is a lot a lot certainly a lot more heritage protection than there was before she wrote that book that's so, right and it's uh it's also point, endured it? yeah yeah it's also endured i think uh although it's quite a modest book on a modest topic i think it's a book that's pretty much still in print it's been reissued many times so yeah. that says something about it's it's uh the recognition of its status as a classic yeah yeah so that's a that's been a real favourite. I'm glad stuck with me. And you, have, ha, me. have you re, obviously you're rereading it um, to guide you with your writing? But do you ever reread it for pleasure, just to delve back in and explore that part of London again? No, I've never read it cover to cover um, after the first time. Truly? I don't think. Although I've dipped into it and uh, and I just dip into it for pleasure sometimes and to remind me what gave me so much pleasure the first time. But uh, I've never read it again cover to cover, although I have pressed it on others uh, to do so. You have? Have you purchased it for other people and gifted it in that hope that they'll read it? (laughs) I think any time I find one secondhand, which I do from time to time, I always buy it for that purpose. So I always have more than one copy on the shelf at home so that there's one to give away. That's wonderful. That's so wonderful. That's my policy with any book I love. Yeah, Yeah, right, to purchase and gift. Oh, yeah, yep. always to have one so that when I, if and when I do rave about it, I can say here. And by the way, here's your own coffee. Yeah, here, have it. <laughs> no pressure. No, <laughs> don't bring it back. <laughs> Give it, read it. And exactly. Then, and then you can become evangelical about it and pass it on to someone else. That's it. Oh, the gift of reading, the gift <laughs> of books. Shall we proceed to your third and final choice on your desert island? Tell us about... I just I'm loving watching you hold this book with such reverence. So please reveal the title and author and then if you can describe what you're holding, that would be a dream. <laughs> My third and final book to accompany me on the island is called Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. It's by James Adgie. And Walker Evans, Walker Evans being the photographer whose photos form a, a very chunky wedge in the middle of the book. It does. And yeah. I have a, um, a a 1960s reprint of the book. It's a Panther Modern Society edition. Um, and it's held together with a rubber band because like so many books, and particularly those with a chunky photo section, it splits in the middle and the photos fall out. Yeah, dud glue, that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, um, it's held together with the rubber band. It's um, It was originally published in the... Uh, early 1940s, I think, yep. um, James Adgie uh, was a 
journalist, really, at the stage that he wrote this book. Uh, during the Great Depression, hmm. he was a journalist for the New York-based magazine Fortune, which was a, a, a business and money magazine for, hmm. um, you know, uh, wealthy young things who'd uh, not lost everything, presumably, in the, in the Great Crash of 1929. Um, so he was writing for that magazine and they took an interest in... Uh, what was happening in other parts of the country to people who weren't making money and, mm. in fact, were losing everything. And they sent James Adji and Walker Evans, the photographer, who was actually on loan to them from the federal government where he was documenting um, uh, the poverty in the Dust Bowl, um, uh, those two were sent to the South and told to come back with a story for Fortune magazine about the plight of those, yeah, essentially in the Dust Bowl or in the poor southern states who mm. were trying to make a living off the land. I think they were sent to southern Alabama. They were sent to southern Alabama, yeah. yeah. They were also told to uh, get to know poor white people, not poor black people, although, of course, the poor black people were hugely in the majority in the place they went. Yeah, in terms of population, yep. absolutely. Uh, but uh, that was not what would sell magazines. That's not what the readers of Fortune were thought to want to see. Um, so they uh, they went down there and James Adji and, to a, a lesser extent, Walker Evans, um, made themselves at home with three families of poor white sharecroppers. Uh, they were a sort of a, a linked family group, these three families. And uh, they spent maybe a month or several weeks or six weeks or something in and around these families. And James Adji in particular spent uh, a few weeks actually living with one of the families um, in their cramped and spartan um, little hut uh, and a very dusty bit of land. He describes how they eked out a living or, or in fact didn't eke out a living. Mm. They were beholden to the person who owned their land for everything. They would, uh, they had to buy their food, their tools, their clothes, everything from the, essentially the company store and everything they bought was then owed to the owner of, uh, of the land when the crops came in. And they were usually left with practically nothing uh, for their year's work um, on the cotton fields, or even less than nothing, owing money. And uh, so they were really dirt poor, and Walker Evans' photos tell that story they very re powerfully. You would know these. So if anybody listening vividly. would know his photos, wouldn't they? Well, I mean, I didn't, so... There's that possibility. Huh. Yeah. So but the so the photos are black and white. Mm -hmm. They're incredibly crisp and sharp. And they show I mean, you can see the dirt on people's faces. Mm. You can see the dirt floors, you can see the grime on the bedspreads, mm -hmm. you are and you can see the flapping canvas over what would be a window. Mm. Um, so it's very demonstrative of, of, of poverty, really, and, and the photographs are incredibly illustrative and mm. I don't – the book wouldn't have worked without them, certainly. No. And, I mean, it wasn't written as a book, as you uh, <laughs> explained in your introduction. It was written as a, as a magazine article, so it absolutely needed the photos mm. um, to illustrate that. But um, – do you want to talk more about what it is about the writing? Because I think the, I mean, the photos certainly are an in integral part of the book, but mm. I think it's the writing really that's the special <laughs> part. And I wonder if that's the case for you. It it is the case for me. Although it's one of those books where reading it, I 
I'm constantly flip, flipping back and forth to the photograph to see the faces and to see the rooms that uh, that James Agee is writing about, which is you know why the book is falling apart. Um, it was never published uh, in Fortune magazine because James Agee was just a writer out of control. His ambition for this piece so outgrew the patience of Fortune magazine. So it was eventually published in 1941 and then and forgotten about, published to great acclaim, republished to great acclaim in the 1960s, uh, which is no accident. So to talk about the writing, it reminds me so much of the new journalism, the kind of psychedelic, crazy writing that took off uh, in the US in the 1960s. And this guy was like 20 or 30 years ahead of his time. Yep, he sure was. He, uh, his writing, it's, I mean, the, the title, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, comes from, uh, I was going to say the Old Testament, but it's actually from this strange book that's between the Old and New Testaments, but it, it kind of has that Old Testament feel. And there's that element in the way he writes. He uh, he was raised um, a Christian, and uh, although at this stage he was uh, he was quite a boozer, he was living a glamorous life in New York. Yes, um, he was, <laughs> and uh, it was quite dissipated. Uh, the this Old Testament feel runs through his writing, but it's also like an incantation. He's just he's he recites he he focuses on and, and recites and, and uh, narrates every detail of he everything does. he sees. So the the family that he was living with, the gut, he calls them the gudges, made the mistake of leaving him at home on his own one day while they went to church or into town. And he proceeded to go through every room in the house and every drawer and every box in every drawer or cupboard and to describe in incredible detail, not just what he saw, but he actually smelled the things. He actually <laughs> recited what they smelled like, whether they were yeah. dusty or or mouldy or, or musty. And um, he he was just an, a, an obsessive, and that was why it was never published as a magazine article. It To me, it just makes it so otherworldly and bizarre and wonderful just to get into under people's skin that way but it's also really freaky you feel quite compromised reading it yes as he felt writing it that's right because he was going through people's private stuff he was right writing things and making observations that nobody should ever have made and certainly shouldn't have written yeah. and published so it's a really um, compromising document for him to have written and for us to read. So you feel kind of creeped out the whole time you're reading it. He puts you right there in, in those rooms, in those houses, mm. in those situations. He described himself uh, as being a spy and an intruder mm. um, in retrospect after having completed the, the written part of that um, assignment that he went on. Um, so, I, you know, I was thinking about, so how do you report back on something uh, without putting yourself in there, and then how do you how do you really tell the full story? Mm. Like, what's too much of the full story? Yeah. I think that that was, I guess, you know, part of what you're describing <laughs> is, is describing an object enough. Do you have to hold it, and do you have to smell it, and mm. tell everyone what it smells like? But you know, again, with this whole you know layers of history and peeling back, I mean, that serves now as a document to things that don't exist mm. anymore, and and of a time that's well gone that we can't imagine. That's true. And he was he was feeling the guilt of being uh, a well-off northerner who mm. could just get up and leave when he was ready. That's the and thing, he, isn't it? he does interrogate himself quite um, 
mercilessly he on does. the page as the book goes on. He now his his uh, companion Walker Evans writes in a in a sort of introductory note that he thinks that a lot of the observational stuff was written during the night mm. and written without sleep, and it has that that weirdly your senses being on on out on stalks, um, sort of hallucinatory feel of uh, of sleeplessness. So who put this book into your hand and said, you must read this, you will <laughs> love it, Robin? I don't know. I'd, some, I'd heard the name with some praise attached to it. I had no idea what it was about and I was having a beach holiday uh, about 10 or 11 years ago down on the Victorian coast somewhere and went into one of those weird kind of lions or rotary secondhand book barns. Yep. And found this, and I have never since, although it's one of those books that I want to press on people and that I want to have more copies of, I've never since found another copy anywhere secondhand. Truly, wow. No, so it's a rare beast. So I found it and just was drawn to it. And I walked around the streets of that seaside town for the next three or four days with this book in my hand. You did not. Reading it from cover to cover. And it's not a short book. No, it's I not. Did. <laughs> you did. It was, it was just, it just transported me. Um and I wanted to be transported because although it sounds idyllic being on a, um, a summer holiday by the beach, I was going through the worst time in my life. My teenage daughter was just going completely bananas and it felt as if my life was over. And this book pulled me back, really pulled me back from the edge because it was so immersive yeah. and so so heartfelt and just so raw it took in the you way it was written. Didn't it? it took me somewhere and the rawness of... His writing and, the, mm. and what he was feeling, even though it was so far removed from me, the rawness of it and the intensity of it was exactly what I needed without knowing that that was what I needed. So being able to immerse myself in this and literally walk around the streets of, I don't know, Torquay or wherever it was, um, with this in my hand and take my head out of the place it would otherwise have been was just, you know, the greatest New Year gift I could have had. Isn't that amazing? Um, so that's why this book means such a lot to me, but I can still dip into it at any point and, um, and, and get great pleasure out of it. It doesn't take me back to an awful time. It reminds me that it, sa- it felt like it saved my life. But it, I also love what he does and, um, and appreciate the writing of this man, even though it's weird, compromising and not something I would ever, I would ever tackle myself. But there's just something about this book. It's... Um, yeah, it saved my life. The power of reading. Yeah. It's incredible. Yep. It does take you places and it t- can take you away from yourself. And, you know, in some instances where you're going through something or you're experiencing something that's um, difficult, sometimes reading other people's experiences of the same uh, difficulty is not helpful. Mm. Sometimes being completely transported elsewhere. That's right. Yeah. And I, I guess I didn't really want a happy a happy book wouldn't have done the no. same thing. Somebody's no. happy experience would have just made me feel worse. The fact that this guy was really racked with the intensity of what he was experiencing yes. uh, chimed with in some degree, if not nature, with what I was feeling. Yeah. How wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us. I feel very lucky to have heard you talk about that. No, it's such a special book to me. I've got the warm and fuzzy (laughs) What are you reading at the moment? I'm reading a book about climate change and sea level rising, the rising sea levels. It's a bit of light reading before bed. Yeah. Do you read before bed? Yeah, not for long, about two minutes. (laughs) (laughs) That's it, lights out, literally. Um, So it's great for that. But uh, So I'm reading about about, um, 
global warming and climate change. And uh, it's really not a favourite topic of mine, but it's a book I'm reading for another purpose. And, uh, you know, it's always enlightening. Um, so, yeah. What time of day do you get most of your reading done? After dinner. After dinner. Yep. Okay. Yep. In my in my favourite chair with the cat not far away. Tell us about the chair. Into... I think the oh. chair is important. Well, I, actually, I've just changed chairs, but I think that's been a mistake. So for a oh. long time, I've sat in a very firm cane chair. It's actually a commode chair, although I don't use it as a commode chair. It has a very firm seat over the commode uh, pan uh, and I never lift it up. In fact, the seat is held on with blue tack as to, uh, I might use glue in the future to signal <laughs> signal my intention. I will never use it for that purpose. But it is a very comfortable chair, very upright, very straight and firm. And uh, just a week ago, I was walking down a street in my neighbourhood and there was this magnificent red velvet upholstered mini throne and it had to be mini because I've got oh. very narrow doorways so I can't go for a lazy boy or anything like that and uh, it was just out the front of somebody's house and I knocked on his door and said is that can I have that and he said yeah go for it so we I got someone with a car to come and take it home when I got it home I've discovered it lists rather serious it's a rocker as well as an upright but it lists rather seriously to one side so there's a a slightly seasick feeling and I'm, I'm a bit reluctant to <laughs> wriggle around too much when I'm in it. So I really pictured when I saw it, I pictured myself sitting in it like a queen yeah. into my old age, but I, I think I'll be lucky if it lasts a couple of months. So you're going back to the stern. <laughs> back to the commode. <laughs> Yeah, I, I thought it was a good transition from the commode to the throne, but I think I'm going to be, I think I'm going to be backsliding somehow. Well, there's some, there's a kernel of something in that, but I might just leave it for us all to ponder for a moment. Um, and how will you choose? One final question: How will you choose what you read next after your climate change delving? Mm, yeah. What um what do you follow a you know a dense nonfiction book with? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'd I'd be inclined, I think, to follow up with a bit of biography or autobiography, mm-hmm. something of that sort. Fiction is something I visit but rarely and often regret visiting it. Oh truly. Having done so, yeah. Yeah. So I'll hear a, a recommendation that just speaks to me and think that is a book for me and nearly invariably I'm 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 disappointed. It, doesn't doesn't hit me in the place that hit that other person, so I'm often disappointed, but rarely so with uh, with nonfiction, and I I don't mind a bit of autobiography, so I think I might visit there next. Hmm. I look forward to seeing yeah. what that might be. I was reading a great review yesterday of a new biography of Mary Shelley. Oh yes. Yeah. So so I I might give that a try. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. I might dig up the title of that and pop it in our mm, show notes. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, thank you for letting me visit you on your desert island, Robin. <laughs> My pleasure. Robin and Nia, everybody. Thanks for the cold drinks. Oh, pleasure. You can read this episode's show notes, including a list of all the books we've discussed on the Goodreads page, and you can find that on the library's website at www.melbournelibraryservice.com.au and look for the Read page. We would also love to hear about your Desert Island books. Tweet us at Melb Library with the hashtag Desert Island Books. And don't forget, you can subscribe and download Desert Island Books podcasts at iTunes by searching for Melbourne Library Service. And while you're there, you can leave a review on iTunes. It'll help other people find out about the podcast. And it's a really nice thing that you could do. Thank you for listening. Happy reading.